Um, with that in mind, let's come to uh, God's word this morning. I'd like to ask you to please open with me to our text, which is Exodus 19, verses 1 uh, through 19. Exodus 19, 1 through 19. And as uh, Lois had mentioned, um, we're starting a new sermon series uh, this week. Um, we're sort of pivoting a little bit. So during the season of Lent, we were looking at the book of Exodus, and specifically, we were looking at uh, the first few chapters of Exodus, where the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. And like we talked about in that series, we were sort of using uh, that as, as a lens into exploring our own slavery uh, to sin as sinful human beings today. And yet, just like God made a way out of Egypt uh, for the Israelites in the Exodus, um, what we celebrated last week on Easter Sunday morning is that God has also made a way for us out of our own slavery uh, to sin. And we're sort of, uh, we're still in the book of Exodus for the next two weeks, but we're going to kind of pivot because at once God led the Israelites out of Egypt, uh, he started leading them to the promised land and into his presence. And we're going to be tracing that theme of God's presence with his people uh, throughout both the Old and New Testament the next number of weeks, culminating ultimately in a few weeks on Pentecost. And so we're going to look at one of the first instances of that um, where God meets with his people on Mount Sinai here in Exodus 19. So again, Exodus 19, verses 1 through 19. And this is what the text says. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites had left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they had set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and they camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So a few of you have figured this out already that I try to memorize every text I preach. But when it's really long like this, sometimes all of a sudden it, I blank. So, you all every once in a while hear a bit of silence. Back to the text. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. And though the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And these are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. And Moses went back and called the elders of the people to himself. And he set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him to speak. Then all the people said, we will do everything that the Lord has said. And so Moses took their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to appear to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking to you and will always put their trust in you. And Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready on the third day because on that day the Lord will descend on Mount Sinai in front in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. For whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows, but do not lay a hand on them. No person or animal will be permitted to live. Instead, only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. And then he said to them, prepare for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, and everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. 
Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the smoke billowed from it like smoke from a furnace. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, I recently read a news article about someone who had moved halfway across the world uh, to be with someone that they loved, only to find themselves initially unimpressed. Uh, The article told the story of a South Korean woman, and after a long and unsuccessful period of of dating in Korea, uh, she ended up meeting an American on a dating app, falling in love with him, and ultimately deciding to move here to the U.S. in order to see where things would go in the relationship. Upon arriving and seeing him at the airport, though, she was rather unimpressed. Uh, Dressed in shorts and a baseball hat, he hardly seemed the charming man who had swept her off her feet. Instead, at least by appearances, he seemed to be a lot more casual about their potential relationship than she was. And so goes every woman's first few months of marriage to any man ever. Fortunately for her, though, that turned out not to be the case, and they're now engaged. But that was far from assured when she first met him. In the article, she said, My first impression was, this is what I moved across the world for? Well, in the same way, our text this morning records a first impression of sorts, too. And that's because this passage details the Israelites' first interaction with God as a people. Uh, Certainly, Scripture has already recorded a few interactions that individuals have had with God. But this is actually the first time in Scripture where an entire group of people meets with him. And as one commentator I read wrote, it's here on Mount Sinai that the Israelites are formally introduced to their God. Judging by their reaction, though, they may have gotten more than they bargained for. See, contrary to that woman's first impression of her new romantic partner at the airport, far from being unimpressive, it seems that God might actually be too impressive for the Israelites, for his people. First, a bit of background. Um, This passage finds the Israelites fresh off the Exodus. They've just left Egypt behind, miraculously crossed the Red Sea, and are now firmly on their road to freedom out of their slavery. Before they get too far, though, God schedules a little appointment with them. They're to meet him at Mount Sinai, which is the same mountain, actually, where Moses first encountered God at the burning bush. And there God will formally introduce himself to his people. Like the Zoom calls we've all become too familiar with, though, um, that meeting is going to take place from a bit of a distance. Even though God has called the Israelites here to this mountain meeting with him, he still sort of keeps them at arm's length. In fact, he even has Moses put up some limits around the mountain in verse 12 to keep the Israelites from getting too close. This isn't the sort of face-to-face meeting that we used to be used to before COVID, right? Instead, long before this term ever entered our vocabulary, it's almost like God has sort of a socially distanced meeting of his own with his people here. And the reason for that, quite simply, is because God is holy. That's a word we use in church a lot, right? Holy. It's a word we sing about. It's a word we write and read books about. In fact, it's a word that we even use to refer to one of the persons of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And yet, like any word that we use a lot, I wonder sometimes if that word hasn't become a bit too familiar for us. I wonder if we don't just sort of brush right by that word when we hear it 
without really thinking much about it. I wonder if that word holy has lost a bit of its oomph, its power, its meaning and significance for us. After all, what is holiness? What does it mean to be holy? How would we describe that? Well, a basic level to be holy means to be set apart. It means to be consecrated, sacred, or set aside for some special purpose. It means to be separate. And specifically, when we use that word to refer to God, when we call him holy, what it means is that he is separate or set apart from sin. That's kind of how I defined holiness during my first children's message here a few weeks ago. Um, I don't know if you remember that. To be honest, I hardly do. Um, But we were talking about Moses and the burning bush. And as part of that, we said that what it means for God to be holy is that he's the opposite of sin. Okay? There's no sin in God, and that's what holiness is. It's the absence of sin, the omission of it, the lack of sin. And that's who God is. He's sinless, without sin, set apart from it, separate from sin. That's what it means for God to be holy. And the fact is that that's actually how he created us as human beings, too. I think we forget this sometimes, right? Because we've been sinful for so long that it's hard for us to imagine ourselves being any other way than sinful. And yet that's how God created us. As his image bearers, as people who were made to reflect him, God originally made us to be holy people without sin, separate from sin, too. Just like him. The problem, though, obviously, is that we're not that way anymore. In fact, we haven't been that way for a long, long time. Ever since Adam and Eve chose to follow their own will over God's in the Garden of Eden, we've been sinful, broken people who are incapable of living as God created us to, living as the kind of people that he created us to be, and, as a result, living in the kind of relationship with him that he intended us to have. You see, holiness and sin can't coexist. Like we said, holiness, true holiness, is the opposite of sin. It's the absence of sin. In a way, you could say that holiness is anti-sin, and sin is anti-holiness. And so bringing the two together doesn't work. It's like trying to push the same pole of two magnets together, right? It's like oil and water. It's like marshmallow and anything. It just doesn't mix, Okay? We just had Easter a week ago, and I can't stand peeps, or really any marshmallow for that matter. Um, I just don't want to see why anyone likes that stuff. Here's the thing, though. Okay, If those two things, holiness and sin, don't mix, then what that means is that they can't share the same space. There's got to be some distance between them, a gap, a buffer of sorts. And that's actually why God kicks Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. We tend to to read that and, and think that that's part of God's judgment against them for their sin, and that's part of it. That's part of what's going on there. But it's also part of God's grace. Strange as this may sound, it's actually an act of mercy towards them. Because part of why God exiles Adam and Eve from the garden is actually to protect them. Again, like we said, holiness and sin can't coexist. And so that's why God sends Adam and Eve out of the garden. He's putting some space between them, some room, 
some distance so that his holiness doesn't consume them. It's a bit like if you were to bring an ice cube into a room with a roaring fire in the fireplace. That's not going to work, right? Something's got to give. Either the ice cube's going to win or the fire, but it's probably not going to be the ice cube. It's going to melt, right? And the same thing is true of us in the presence of a holy God. Our sin and his holiness can't coexist either. Something's got to give, but it's probably not going to be God. And so part of what we see in Genesis 3 in Scripture is that God starts putting a bit of distance between himself and us as sinful human beings. And as counterintuitive as that might sound, he actually does that for our good. He does it to protect us. Because of our sin, we can't relate to God the way that he created us to anymore. We can't walk and talk with him the way that Adam and Eve used to in the Garden of Eden. We can't experience his full presence anymore. Because as sinful people, the fact is that we can't stand his holiness the same way anymore. And so that's why God puts some limits, some boundaries in place in our passage this morning. Again, in verses 10 through 13 of our text, God tells Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, Be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They're to be stoned or shot with arrows, and not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. In his comments on this passage, Old Testament scholar Peter Enns explains the importance of those restrictions, and he writes, Approaching God is a serious matter. This is why it must be done only on God's terms. Even the Israelites, whom God has just delivered from Egypt, whom God calls his son, cannot simply walk up to him as they please. There are certain rules and regulations that must be followed. And again, that's because God is holy. He's sinless. He's separate. He's set apart. And so as sinful people, we can't go waltzing into his presence whenever and however we want. We can't just show up. We can't uh, treat an encounter with God cavalierly. Instead, we approach the holiness of God with reverence, with awe, and only when he allows us to. And that's the tension in this text. Because God is holy, yes, separate, sacred, and there's some distance between him and his people here. And yet the fact of the matter remains that he's actually the one who's called his people into his presence at Sinai. Verses 16 through 19 record it. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. And everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. In other words, part of what we see going on here at Mount Sinai in real time is the beginning of the reversal of Adam and Eve's banishment from God's presence in Genesis 3. 
Like we said, after their fall into sin, God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden and put distance between himself and us as human beings. But here in this text, what we start to see is that distance begin to close, at least a bit. For the first time since our fall into sin, God has called a people back to himself. Like we said, he's, he's done it with individuals before this. You get little glimpses of it. But this is the first time that he does it with an entire group of people. He doesn't have the Israelites come all the way up to him. They still have to stay at the foot of the mountain. There still has to be some of that space, some of that distance. But he does call them close. Closer than they've ever been with him before. Closer than pretty much anyone other than a certain few individuals have been in a long time. And there is hope in that. Okay, there's hope for Israel in that, but there's also hope for all of us as human beings as a whole. There's hope because part of what that means is that sinners though we are, we are not going to be estranged from God forever. We're not always going to be on the outside looking in. We're not always going to have to stay at arm's length away from him. Instead, eventually, we're going to be able to experience his presence again the way that he created us to. The thing is, though, that in order for that to happen, in order for our estrangement from God to end and for us to experience his presence again, we have to become holy again. You see, the equation hasn't changed. God's holiness and our sin as human beings still can't coexist in the same space. So what needs to happen? Well, what needs to happen is that for our relationship with God to be the way that he created it to be again, we need to become the kind of people he created us to be again. And that's actually the whole reason why God brings the Israelites here to Mount Sinai. God's plan and purpose in doing that is to restore the Israelites to the kind of people that he meant them to be, the kind of people who could image him, and the kind of people who could live in his presence and in a relationship with him. As Chuck DeGroat writes in his book on Exodus, if Egypt binds us in a slavery that contradicts God's original design, then the wilderness is about rediscovering that original beauty, dignity, and responsibility. For Israel, the first goal of that journey into the wilderness was Sinai. There God reaffirmed his covenant with Israel and gave them the law, through which they could learn what it meant to live and thrive as God's people. Sinai stands between Egypt and the promised land as a reminder that God is committed to taking as long as you need to form you into the person you were designed to be. This is your identity. You lost it somewhere along the way. Now let me remind you who you really are. And that's what God intends to do with the Israelites here at Sinai. He intends to remind them who they are. That's the point of all the commandments, laws, rules, and regulations that God is about to give the Israelites in the next couple of chapters. And we actually just read a few of those earlier, the Ten Commandments. In essence, it's all a way of God reminding the Israelites, this is how I made you. This is how I created you. This is how you're supposed to be. Now live like it. That's the point of Sinai. It's the return of God's presence among his people so that he can make them holy people again. If you know the story, though, then you know that that doesn't really work out, does it? Despite saying in verse 8, we will do everything the Lord has said, often the Israelites don't do anything the Lord has said. In fact, often they do everything but 
what the Lord says. In fact, just a few chapters after this, in chapter 32, while Moses is still up on the mountain meeting with God on their behalf, the Israelites will make an idol in the form of a golden calf and worship that instead of God. So much for doing everything God says, right? So much for being the kind of people he created them to be. So much for being holy. But while it's easy for us to sort of scoff and roll our eyes at the Israelites, I think we need to ask ourselves the question, are we any better? It's easy for us to look at the Israelites here and think, how could they mess this up? And I know as a kid, certainly growing up in the church, I used to think that all the time. You've got God right there on the mountain, right? There's thunder and lightning, there's fire and smoke. It's right there. How could you turn away from him so quickly? Well, how can we? We might not be camped around a mountain with the cloud of God's presence hovering over us, but it's not like we don't know the kind of people that we're supposed to be. It's not like we don't know the kind of people that God created us to be. It's not like we know less than the Israelites what it takes to be holy. If anything, I'd say that we actually know more. We stand downstream as the recipients of thousands of years of biblical teaching, theology, and all the history of people's interactions with God. If there's anyone who should know what it means to be holy, it should be us. And yet, just like the Israelites, we still can't do it, can we? We still can't live the way God created us to. We still can't be the holy people that we're called to be. We still can't live the way that we need to in order to experience and enjoy God's presence and our relationship with him. As sinful people who continue to be sinful, we still can't do it. And so the question remains, what needs to happen? If the equation hasn't changed and God's holiness still can't coexist with our sin, then what do we do? If we don't want to stay at arm's length away from God for all eternity, then how are we going to close the gap the buffer, the distance between him and us. If we don't want to stay estranged from God forever, then how do we fix that? Well, the answer is that we don't. We can't. We're incapable of it. And so that's why God has given us a Savior. And that brings us to the gospel. In his commentary on this passage, Old Testament scholar Peter Enns points out that there's a big difference between the Old Testament versus the New. And in his comments on Exodus 19, he writes this, One thing that is missing from the New Testament appearances of God is the notion of fear. In the Old Testament, shocking revelations of God caused a great trembling on the part of the recipients. But this is not the case in the New Testament. The reasons for this are made clear in Hebrews 12, verses 18 through 24, and then he quotes that whole passage, and I'm going to read it as well. The author of Hebrews writes, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses himself said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, 
to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Enns goes on, and to be honest, I thought about trying to rewrite this, but he said it so well that I didn't think I could do it better than him, so I'm just going to keep quoting him. He continues, We do not fear because we as Christians have arrived at another mountain, not Mount Sinai, but Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. Not only this, but we have come to angels and heavenly saints, to God himself and to his son Jesus, the mediator. We do not fear because we, even now, are given access to God in heaven, not on an earthly mountain, but on his heavenly throne. We, like Isaiah, see the Lord high and exalted on his throne, but a trembling fear does not come upon us. Why? Because as the author of Hebrews explains elsewhere in the book, Christ the mediator, by his once-for-all sacrifice, intercedes for us. We therefore have confidence to enter the most holy place. The factor that makes the difference between the New Testament saint and the Old Testament saint is the work of Christ. This is not to say that we enter into his intimate presence casually without reverence, but it does mean that since the death and resurrection of Christ, we enter into that presence with a degree of joy, thanksgiving, and confidence which were wholly lacking in Exodus 19. For we know that we are without sin before God and have been reconciled to God through Christ. As Moses consecrated the people in Exodus 19 to prepare their approach to God, we are consecrated by virtue of our relationship to the risen Christ. And that's the gospel, my friends. We are called to be holy people. We are not holy people. And yet we still have nothing to fear. We no longer have to worry about being banished from God's presence like Adam and Eve in the garden. We no longer have to worry about being kept at arm's length from God. We no longer have to worry that we're not the kind of people who will be able to have a relationship with him. We no longer have to worry about any of that because we are forgiven. As Enns writes, because of the risen Christ, we've been redeemed, we've been renewed, and we have been invited back into a relationship with God. We've been invited back into his presence. It doesn't mean that we don't still try to live as God's holy people. It doesn't mean that we don't still try to live the way he created us to. It doesn't mean that we don't still strive to live in a way that reflects our relationship with him. It just means that he's not going to take his presence away from us when we fall short. Because of Christ, we are God's people again. Because of Christ, the gap has been closed, the distance eliminated, and the separation healed. And that is our hope and assurance as God's people today. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that even though you are a holy God and we are not holy people, you have made it possible for us to be transformed, renewed, and redeemed in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you as well for the fact that you give us your Holy Spirit who leads and guides us in our lives, works day in and day out to sanctify us and make us people who can reflect the sacrifice that Christ has made for us. Lord, help us to continue to live more and more as people who are open to that work in our lives each and every day and who are grateful for the incredible redemption 
and gospel good news that you have made possible for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.